good and holy name. How thankful we are that you forgive our sins, that you remove them as far as the east is from the west, that you are able to take our iniquity and you are able to wash it away from our lives. Father, I believe that all of us in this room today would admit that we are sinners and that our sin is great, but how thankful we are today to know that your grace is greater. So, Father, I pray that we would continue to lean into that grace and experience your goodness as we continue to worship you from your word. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen and amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and open with me to Mark's Gospel, the book of Mark. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and in a few minutes we'll be reading uh, several verses. Easter is just a few weeks away, and, and we're moving toward that date. And as we do that, I want us to take the next three weeks leading up to Easter and focus on the cross. That's why I've called this, this brief series Cross-Centered. I, I want everything that we talk about over the next uh, few weeks to be focused upon that cross as we prepare to celebrate the empty tomb. Speaking of Easter, we want you to, to be sure that you're the hands and feet of Jesus and that you're reaching out with the gospel and that you're, you're serving your community. And we want you to invite someone. You know, people are more likely to attend church around Easter than they are at other times of the year. And we want you to uh, invite someone to sit on your pew and to be a part of that. We want you to reach out into our community as the, the day before Easter on uh, the 16th of April, we seek to do ministry and mission as we live out the gospel, as we celebrate the Jesus who died upon this cross and who was raised from the tomb. And we're going to do that in a couple of ways. We're going to, to do that. One, we're going to have a group that's here at the church at our Easter block party. And then we're going to have another group that's over at Baghdad at the Millsite Park. And, and we're going to serve our, our community that way. So we want you to get involved in that. In fact, when you leave today, we want you to go ahead and start inviting people to that. So when you walk out of these doors and you look over to the left, or if you exit out this way, there's a table set up there as well, you will notice a table that has three different invite cards on it. One of those invite cards is for our Easter Sunday service on April the 17th. So pick up a couple of them and hand them to people that you know don't have a relationship with Jesus or maybe they're not engaged in church or in a church ministry. And then we've got two other invite cards for our outreach. One of them is the Easter Family Festival, which is at Baghdad. The other is the Easter Block Party, which is here on our church campus. So you pick up one of those as well, a few of those, and hand those out to people to invite them to that. Many of you have already uh, volunteered for that, and we're very, very thankful thankful, you can still volunteer for that by going to our church website and clicking the link at the very top that will give you the options of the things that we need that will be taking place. You do that over the next week or 10 days or so, we're going to give everybody the chance to sign up. So you only have that chance to sign up for the next 7 to 10 days. And after we give everyone the chance to sign up, then we'll be sharing with you who did sign up, we'll 
be sharing where you'll be and what you'll be doing that day. It's a great opportunity for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus because I believe that Jesus is worth it. I believe the relationship he offers us is worth our effort and it's worth our ministry. And the reason I believe that in part is because of what we're going to see, this scene that, that, took, that, that takes place in, in Mark chapter 14. And, and we're going to look at the experience of Jesus in a place called Gethsemane. Now, I've titled the sermon, A Garden That Became a Grave. And I did that intentionally, that there's a very popular worship song that's been on the scene for some time. Uh, and part of that song tells us that, that he, Jesus, turns graves into gardens. And I, I love how Jesus has the power to do that, that he's able to step into a situation where there is death and where there is hurt, and he is able to bring life and beauty from that. And that song caught my attention this week as I was thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane, how that indeed he has the ability to, to change graves into gardens, but understand that before Jesus could ever ever turn the grave into a garden, he had to turn a garden into a grave. And what we see here happening in Gethsemane, I'll be honest with you, <clears throat> this is one of the most emotionally intense passages of Scripture. It shows us a picture of Jesus that maybe we're not accustomed to seeing, but one in which we must see this morning. Let's look at our text, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a, a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he, Jesus, came and found them, the disciples, the people at First Baptist Church, sleeping. And he said to Peter, that's why we know they were Baptists. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? That's also a precedent for an hour-long sermon, by the way. I just want to bring that out to you as well. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. <clears throat> See, my betrayer is at hand. 
You see, when, when we think about Jesus, we, we tend to think of Jesus defiantly marching toward the cross with a, a great deal of boldness and a, and a total lack of fear or apprehension. But we get a different sense as we read of this unbelievably heavy moment in this unbelievably heavy event. When you begin to understand the emotions that are expressed in this text, it seems that Jesus is experiencing just the opposite of what we would think he would experience. He's trembling. He's frantically alternating between God and the disciples, asking God if there is another way. This experience in Gethsemane is a new experience for Jesus. When he faced the other uh, incidents in which his life was threatened when he faced danger in other circumstances. He showed great courage and great resolve. In fact, just a few chapters prior to Gethsemane, Jesus courageously declared that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And shortly after Gethsemane, Jesus will stand before Pilate, and there's not one shred of hesitation or reservation or fear or distress, only resolve. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, when I read this text, it brings up a question in my mind. What's happening to Jesus at this moment? Of all the times Jesus faced danger and peril and suffering and death, why did this moment cause him so much grief and so much pain. Did you see what it said in verse 33? That as he prayed, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word began means that when he was praying, Jesus saw something. And what he saw in his prayer shook him. It began at that moment. In fact, it didn't just bother him. Listen, it almost killed him in that moment. Verse 34, Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Whatever he saw was so troubling and horrifying, he literally almost died under the strain of it. Luke records this incident for us as well, and, and Luke adds the detail that as Jesus was praying in that garden, he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. What would cause this? Why is Jesus so troubled? Why does this garden seem like it's turning into a grave? I want to share with you three things that I see happening in this text that as we see them happening, we're seeing this garden become a grave. And it's showing us that before Jesus ever got to the cross, he began to go through the pain and the horror of his crucifixion and death. First is this. This garden of Gethsemane became a grave. Because our sin demanded a price be paid. Okay, I want you to dial in, tune in with me right here. Very important. 
Here is the main reason I believe Jesus is in such anguish. In the Garden of Gethsemane, for the first time ever, the Son, Jesus Christ, is experiencing the horrors of being abandoned and forsaken by the Father because He is preparing to bear our sins and pay the cost of those sins in our place. And part of that cost was to be forsaken by everyone, including the Father. You see, Jesus had called out to His Father numerous times in His life and his father had always responded but now for the first time in all eternity in this garden when the son calls out to the father there is silence Jesus Christ the father and he does not receive a response and so he stumbles back to the disciples looking for some kind of comfort some kind of assurance but they're all asleep they're unaware of the significance of what is happening so he goes back to his father for the second time and prays and he experiences the same silence and the same sense of being forsaken and he stumbles back to the disciples and they're still asleep and the third time it's not the charm it's the same thing he cries out and there is no answer from heaven the only explanation for what is happening between the son and the father in Gethsemane is that God had already begun to turn his face away from the son and the judgment of our sin upon Jesus had already started before the first nail was driven into his body. The Son of God was being forsaken by God the Father because he was bearing the weight of our sin. Can you grasp with me today the heaviness of this moment? That every moment of Jesus' life had been spent under the full approval of his Father. When he's baptized, the heavens open up and, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and the Father bellows out from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But now in this moment, in the moment when Jesus needed the presence of the Father the most, God turns his face away from the Son and Jesus staggered under the weight of that moment to the point that it almost killed him. It is difficult, if not impossible, to accurately describe or illustrate what Jesus is going through in this moment of feeling utterly alone, forsaken, abandoned, and rejected. Watch, somehow, in this moment in Gethsemane, Jesus experienced the equivalent of hell for us because complete abandonment by God is exactly what hell is. You know, people try to explain hell. They try to understand hell 
It's one of those things that once you experience it, you don't have a chance to unexperience it. And I don't doubt at all the torment of the, the body that's experienced for eternity, but the essence of hell is the absence of God. Hear me? The essence of hell is the utter absence of God. The physical horrors of Jesus' death were terribly horrendous and they were horrible, but that is not what made Jesus stagger in Gethsemane. What made him stagger in this garden was the abandonment by God that he faced. God's wrath against sin, that is the punishment for sin, and he was experiencing that in this garden. Now here's the good news, Jesus paid this great price. Jesus was abandoned by God in this moment, so we will never have to be abandoned by God in any moment. Jesus was forsaken by God, so we would never have to spend one day without the presence of God in our lives. Jesus began paying my sin, the price for my sin in my place in Gethsemane, and that garden becomes a grave because our sin demands that a price be paid. Second, this garden became a grave because the love that Jesus has for you had to be displayed. When I read about the garden of Gethsemane, there's been a time or two I thought, if I were God, you ever played that game, if I were God? How many of you got a list of people? Don't look at me like that. <laughs> if I were God, I mean, a, I don't want a broken leg, just a stump toe, you know, something like that. I play this Gethsemane over in my mind, and I wonder if I'm God do I let Jesus know this ahead of time? I mean, what if he'd have backed out? <laughs> I oftentimes wondered why would God give Jesus this, this sneak peek when in this prayer he came to the realization in that prayer that his father would have to turn away from him as he bore the weight of our sin what if Jesus had decided to back out? Here's why I think God tells him this up front. We are able to know that Jesus went to that cross voluntarily, knowing full well what was about to happen, knowing full well what he would experience. He did not get to the cross and go, ha, I didn't think this is how it's going to be. No, at the outset, before he ever reached Golgotha, before he ever got to Calvary, Jesus knew what this death would entail. And knowing that Jesus knows this beforehand, and helps us better see the depth of his love for us and the price he was willing to pay to redeem us. The apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrated, God showed his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, hang with me. Watch this. Watch how this connects. In the garden, Jesus is on his face, 
being crushed by what was about to happen to him. To the point that the Gethsemane almost killed him. But something remarkable happened. When Jesus got up off the ground in Gethsemane, when he picked his face up from the dirt, he turned that face and went directly to the cross. See, he came into Gethsemane in great sorrow, great distress, great trouble. But by the time he gets to the cross, something has changed. Per Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it tells us that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. Did you hear me? The joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. That in Gethsemane, he's on his face crying, can this cup pass from me is there any other way but by the time he gets to Golgotha by the time he gets to Calvary it's the joy that sat before him that he endures that cross there was joy because something had been set before him what did Jesus see that he was going to obtain that made the cross not only worth it but it made the cross something that he embraced with joy think about this what would Jesus have on the other side of the cross post crucifixion that he did not have on this side of the cross before his death I'll tell you what it is it's you it's you you are what he would gain from the death and from the burial and from his resurrection what did he have after the cross that he didn't have before? You. You are the reason. I am the reason. And God demonstrates his love for us. And that love led to something. John writes it like this in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The joy that was set before him was the fact that God was going to use Jesus to make many people sons and daughters of God, children of God. That garden had to become a grave because the love of Jesus for you had to be displayed. Number three, this garden became a grave because there's only one way to receive eternal life. You know, there's a lot of people who one of their issues with evangelical Christianity is the label that they place upon us is that we are exclusive. We believe that there's only one way. And, and the best Greek word I got for that is, duh. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'll never, if I ever begin to preach that there's another way other than Jesus, y'all show me the door right then because I've stopped preaching the gospel. Jesus prayed three times. If there is any other way, 
if there's any other way, if there's any other way, there was no response. Now, I'm not that bright, but when a question goes unanswered, generally means no. Father, is there any other way that we can get salvation accomplished? God is silent because there's not another way. There is only one way. Hey, look, it would be nice. It would, be, it would make a great church Hallmark Christmas film. Christmas slash Easter. They celebrate them all at the same time. If we could all be going up to God just on different sides of the mountain, that would make a great feel-good idea. But the fact of the matter is there is only one way to eternal life, and it's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that makes me an exclusive moron, then exclusive moron, make me a t-shirt and I'll wear it. The call to be saved is inclusive. Anyone can be saved. But the way in which we are saved is very exclusive. It only happens through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Jesus gladly left Gethsemane and joyfully embraced that old rugged cross because the cross was the only way to save us. There is no greater insult to Jesus than to say there is another way or multiple ways. If there are, Gethsemane was a waste. If there are, the crucifixion was not needed. If there are multiple ways, the empty tomb is a sham. This garden became a grave because that was the only way we could have eternal life. Now this passage shows us what Jesus did for us, but it also shows us how we should respond to what Jesus has done for us. We, we stopped reading at verse 42, but if you've still got your Bible open, if, if you'll look over to the next verse, it says in verse 43 that immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came unto the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Look at verse 47 our text. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now other gospels tell us that that was Peter who took out a sword in response to Gethsemane and sliced off the ear of Malchus, the servant. You see, Peter did not understand his own condition. When Peter draws his sword, he's identifying himself as one of the good guys whose task it is to execute judgment upon those that are the bad guys. Watch me. Well, I promise we're wrapping up in the next 45 minutes. You'll be out of here. I promise. <laughs> Peter draws a sword of judgment in a garden. Go back with me all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God puts his people in a garden. 
and his people rebel. Adam and Eve sin, and God kicks them out of the garden. And at the entrance, the scripture tells us, at the entrance of that garden, God placed a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming, guess what? Sword. Sword. That was a sword of judgment because of Adam and Eve's sin. And now here we are in a different garden where Jesus who has the right to use that sword of judgment, instead of using it, he steps forward to take it, and he was slain in our place. You see, when you think that you are or can become a good enough person who doesn't need someone else to save you, you will always do what Peter did. You will always bear a sword against others. You will always look in judgment of others. Most of us are like Simon Peter. We see the world as two groups of people, bad guys versus good guys. And whatever group we're in, guess what? That's the good guys. And everybody else that's not in our group, they are the bad guys. The Bible teaches there is no bad guys versus good guys. The Bible teaches that we are all bad people who sit under the wrathful judgment of God, which means that none of us deserves to bring a sword of judgment against any other person. The only one who could have justly used that sword against us stood under it instead his name is Jesus he did not just die for you he died instead of you and this gift that he offers you today this gift of salvation cannot be achieved it simply must be received for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. My question to you, my friend, is very simple today. Have you placed faith and trust in this Jesus? Say, Pastor, I'm a church member. I didn't ask you to church member. The Garden of Gethsemane, a qualification, church membership had nothing to do with Garden of Gethsemane. Pastor, I've been baptized. I don't care if every mullet in this area knows you by name. You've been baptized so many times. Had nothing to do with your eternal security, with, with where you spend eternity. Old church is important. Baptism is important. Absolutely, they're important. But I'm not asking you to give me a list of what you have done. I'm asking you, have you allowed Jesus to do it all for you? Because he has. This Jesus went into this garden. And he made it a grave to where he would begin the process of his death for our sin. So that one day, he would transform the grave into the garden.
if you don't know Jesus today, I don't care what else you do with your life. You will never do anything as important and valuable as making him your Lord and Savior. In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and you've got questions about that, we would love to talk with you about that. Make your way down to this altar. Let's say, Pastor, I want to talk to someone. We'll get you with someone this morning who can walk through what it means to follow Jesus, to be a part of his family. Maybe you are part of that family. Maybe you would have been among that contingency with him in the garden, but maybe like Peter, you have drawn your sword of judgment on others, and maybe God is softening your heart. Maybe God's placing someone on your heart today that needs to meet this Savior. I don't know what God's placed upon your heart to do. As I say almost every week, my only ask will be for you to put your yes on the table. God decides what's on, well, what the table is. Our task is to put the yes on the table. Whatever God leads you to do during this time of commitment, after I pray, simply follow him. Lord Jesus, how I thank you that you went into this garden and that you began to make it a grave so that as we go through life, we have a Savior who has died for our sins so that when our life ends, we can spend eternity with you. Whatever need is in this room this day, whatever decision needs to be made, I pray we would honor you by being obedient and saying yes. In Jesus' good name I pray.